Hello and welcome to STP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors and public intellectuals. I'm William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. Today, my special guest is Kevin Hickson, a senior lecturer in British politics at the University of Liverpool and the former chairman of the Social Democratic Party. Together, we discuss two influential figures in the Labour Party of the 1970s and 80s, Peter Shaw and former Prime Minister James Callaghan. Along with discussing their careers and legacies, we also talk about the ideas of political flashpoints from their time that have re-emerged in today's political climate. I hope you enjoy the show. So by popular demand, our guest on SDP Talks today is a senior lecturer in politics at Liverpool University and former chairman of the Social Democratic Party, Dr. Kevin Hickson. Kevin, welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. Great. Now, most of these political podcasts uh, with authors are here to um, discuss one book, mm -hmm. but we've, we're lucky today. We're going to discuss two. Um, the first is uh, your biography of Peter Shaw, which you wrote with Jasper Miles and Harry Taylor. Uh, and secondly, a more recent book uh, on uh, Jim Callaghan. Uh, so first, Peter Shaw. I mean, I have to say, I'll declare, I think you know, that Peter Shaw uh, is a major political hero of mine. And he, yeah. uh, and he, his book, Separate Ways, changed my life, I suppose, in politics, because um, previous to that, I was certainly in the 80s, I was a sort of moderate supporter of the European project. Uh, and then you read more and you, you, you discover what the reality is. And of course, the European project changes. Uh, and I read a, a, a review of Separate Ways written by Peter Riddle in The Times. I got the book, I read it, and he totally convinced me. I think it was a brilliant, absolutely brilliant book. And obviously now Peter, Peter Shaw is known as a, a Eurosceptic and uh, Labour patriot. So um, can you just give us a sketch of, of this important politician from sort of his, his early days and, and then his uh, importance in the Labour Party? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, just to go back to what you're saying about separate ways, I very much agree with you about that. I came to, to the Eurosceptic cause a bit late as well. So up until really the start of 2016, mm. I was still in two minds over whether to be... A, I was never an enthusiast, mm. but maybe a, a reluctant remainer, as it were, mm. uh, or to leave. And, and again, Peter's work, even though he, he died some years before, did influence mm. that decision that I took mm. uh, in 2016. So he was uh, initially, um, he'd been uh, you know, a distinguished acad uh, academic career at school, mm. uh, at Cambridge University, where he became one of the, the elite group of the apostles. Mm. Uh, and then uh, after a, a, a service in the, in the RAF, uh, he went into becoming a political advisor to Harold Wilson and then an MP from 64. Uh, and I think all, all the people we interviewed for that book mm. uh, were, said the same thing, which was what struck me when I, the only occasion I met Peter mm. was when I was doing my PhD. Uh, this was back in 2001, the same year that he, he died. Mm. Um, how modest he was. Mm. And all the people who, uh, yeah, that struck me uh, and have stayed with me since, uh, uh, since I interviewed him at that time. And all the people we interviewed for that book said the same thing, that, uh, mm. A modest, self-effacing character, which is, un of course, unusual in politics. It is unusual in politics, and, and actually, I was going to ask you probably later on, but I'll ask you now. Um, obviously, he he co-authored, I think, three Labour Party mm. manifestos, and was certainly very, very close to to Wilson yeah. in influence mm. terms in the '60s, and obviously became a, a cabinet minister. But he didn't get to the top, did he? He didn't actually. I mean, he 
tried for Labour, Labour leadership mm -hmm. he, uh, mm -hmm. twice, was it? Yeah. Yeah, and failed. Um, I, it's interesting that he didn't get to the top, because obviously I, I, I admire him intellectually, and I think he's, he's you know, certainly in terms of being right about politics and prescriptions, he was there. But he had limitations as a party politician, uh, didn't he? And what, what do you think they were? Yes, I think that's right. I think he was, again, uh, because of his modesty, although some people thought it came across as arrogance, he was rather aloof. Yeah. He, was, he was not a, uh, a, the sort of politician who would frequent the tea room mm. and try to build up a coterie of support. Uh, and so, yeah, he didn't have much time for that and he didn't suffer fools gladly either, I don't think, really. Mm. Um, so he didn't build up that support in the way that you need to do in order to get to the very top. Mm. Uh, and that showed in, in 1980, which was his big chance to become leader of the party. Michael Foote was going to endorse him. He went away on the Friday to go and to give a lecture about Jonathan Swift and mm -hmm. said, when I come back on Monday, I will declare my support for you, which would have brought Peter Shaw the left of the party and it would have won. Uh, but over that weekend, Michael Foote was persuaded by his wife, in particular also some of the trade union leaders, mm -hmm. uh, to stand in, and, and that scuppered uh, Peter's chances really. Mm. And again, that, that, that was, uh, I think, one of the things to, to note there is that the, the other limitation with Peter in terms of getting to the very top mm. was that he wasn't really a trade union man. He was a member of the trade union, but he didn't build yes. up that, again, that support uh, in the way that Michael Foote did, which proved mm. crucial uh, in 1980. Yes, I wonder what would have happened if, had Foote not stood. I mean, how far do you think Shaw would have got in that? Uh, well, we, we speculate about that in the book, and of course there's no way of knowing, but we did say that it was perfectly reasonable to conclude that he could have won. Mm. Uh, it would have been a, pretty much a straight contest between him and Dennis Healy. Uh, Healy was by far, opinion polls suggested at that time, a very popular politician, mm. perhaps mm. the most popular politician in Britain. Mm. But those who knew him knew that he had character traits which weren't uh, uh, particularly attractive. Uh, he was unnecessarily aggressive and yes. rude and so on. Yes. Yes. Uh, so Peter may have persuaded the, the, the people in the centre of the party as well as on the left. Mm. Uh, and in those days, that was the last contest where it was just the MPs who decided. Yes. Uh, and so Peter may have, may have won. Yeah. Uh, and I think he would have performed better then than Michael Foote. So, um, yeah. I mean, Foote did, uh, did distance himself from the hard left at the mm. time, as you recall, mm. and he did support the, the Falklands War, mainly mm. Peter, uh, Peter encouraged him mm. uh, in that direction. Mm. Uh, but the, the, the Falklands War would have, been, uh, would have not become the political issue it was, I don't think, in, in 83, and Peter may have also stopped the, the breakaway to the SDP to some extent. Very possible. Uh, and, and also stopped the... The, the rise of the hard left, because he was mm. initially very friendly with Tony Benn. Mm. And they mm. fell out mm. at that time. It was only towards the end of the lives where they made up. Mm. Very interesting. I mean, it, yeah, certainly his character, it's unusual. I mean, he, he wasn't a front-line politician, a typical politician, was he? More thoughtful, mm -hmm. as you say, probably more shy as well. I mean, it's yeah. interesting mm -hmm. when, you, when you watch the... We'll talk about that wonderful speech uh, a little later, but the, uh, the speech... Um, to, to have such a, arguably one of the best speeches ever mm -hmm. given um, by someone that is actually quite reserved, mm -hmm. quite, he was sort of probably mm -hmm. on autopilot. It was very interesting. Can I just get, because he's so associated with uh, Euroscepticism. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously he was, this was very, very deep rooted, wasn't it? Went all the way back and uh, the patriotism, it linked to his patriotism. And he was one of the very few people that actually bothered to read the Treaty of Rome, and yeah. therefore he's mm -hmm. one of the few parliamentarians mm -hmm. that really knew what the implications mm -hmm. were, because so few didn't. Can you tell us a little yeah, bit Yeah, that's right. It was, it, and it was difficult at that time to, to get a, uh, a copy of the Treaty of Rome in, in mm. English. Mm. Uh, Peter got one of the copies and read it uh, when we interviewed his, 
his widow, she described it as a tripping hazard in yes, the bedroom yes. in more ways than one. That's right. Um, yeah, because yeah. He, he would study it at night. It was, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, you know, it was a bedtime reading, really. Yeah. Um, because he wanted to read the whole thing. Yeah. And right from the start, he was, as you said, a Eurosceptic. When uh, most people in Britain were either indifferent mm. or regarded as a second order issue or, or were very much pro. Uh, the Conservative Party was, uh, you know, was, was overwhelmingly pro-European. Macmillan led the first attempt at membership, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and Peter was, was uh, as we said, one of the early Eurosceptics and did persuade, uh, to some extent, I think Hugh Gateskill to write that speech. He didn't actually write the text of the speech, mm -hmm. but he wrote the briefing papers that led to Hugh Gateskill's The Thousand Years of History speech. Thousand Years of History speech. Because they realised that it was uh, essentially committed to free market. Uh, economics and free trade, mm. that it did undermine the sovereignty of the nation state mm. and that it would impede a future Labour government mm. from introducing the sorts of things which they wanted to, to introduce. That's the very, very point and uh, was a key point actually, one of the mm -hmm. key points in separate ways, which is that you can't really self-govern, you don't have the scope to make your own yeah. social and economic bargains if you're inside that club. And it's a point that I was lucky enough to review uh, the book for the Spectator, and I drew that out. And it said, and you know, in saying that Shaw made the point, the sort of killer point really to fellow members of the left, which is the EU um, contradicts the very Keynesianism which you profess to want to mm -hmm. implement. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's surprising how few people on the left really understood that. Why? Why was that? Yeah. Well, initially, the, the, I think Peter's view was much more widely held in the party. Uh, so, of course, in 83, the party was committed to withdrawal yes. without even a, yeah. a, uh, another referendum. Mm. Um, and the change in the Labour Party happened very quickly in 88, mm. when Jacques Delors came over and spoke to the TUC and mm. said, we're going to introduce this social policy mm. aspect. Seduce them, really. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and th they thought that was all the things which they wanted, which they couldn't have in Britain because Thatcher was winning. And I think it only really resonated with people in the party and the trade union movement at that time because after the 87 defeat, there was a, a mood of pessimism in the party mm -hmm. that Thatcher had won three times. Mm -hmm. She was unstoppable, she couldn't be beaten. Mm -hmm. There was no way of reversing this tide of neoliberalism in Britain. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they thought they could have some of it back through the back door, as it were, through, through Brussels. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, Peter was very critical of that view because he thought that the social chapter didn't really amount to very much. Yeah. They'd ignored the fact that it, it, it furthered the uh, free trade, mm -hmm. uh, creating the single market, the, the moves towards a single currency. Mm -hmm. They went for the tactical, didn't they? they? They thought, well, if we can get this through that means, those means, mm -hmm. that's sufficient. Whereas it's actually a mistake because yeah. mm -hmm. what really matters is who is making the policy, Absolutely. not just what yeah. the policy is. And that was very much Peter's point, that yeah. there was nothing in the social chapter yeah. which the Labour Party couldn't offer to the, to the electorate at the next election yeah. uh, and then introduce it through a sovereign parliament. And it prevents you doing many other things that you may wish to do. Yeah. But a, a breach mm -hmm. by the rules. Mm -hmm. No, it's very good. I think he's. I think Shaw's brilliant on that. And another aspect, obviously, we've mentioned is patriotism, the combination of state mm -hmm. and nation, mm -hmm. which you, you, you've mentioned to me before, which is mm -hmm. this belief in the nation uh, as a as a as a sovereign entity. It's us. Yeah. And but also a belief in the state and belief in state capacity to make lives better and to intervene for the good. Absolutely. So it's the, yeah, the belief in both the nation yeah. and the state. Yeah. And historically, the, the left was stronger on the state, but weak on the nation. Mm. The Conservatives may be stronger on the nation, but weaker on, yeah. on the state. And for Peter, it was, it was very much both, uh, that a sovereign Westminster Parliament could introduce these sorts of things. So I don't, Peter wasn't ashamed to sit alongside right-wingers on platforms. Mm. Yeah. He did that in the 75 referendum. Yeah. Uh, he got involved in the, the Bruges group and so on yeah. uh, later on. 
Um, so he was prepared to share a platform because he believed that that restoration of sovereignty was absolutely mm. fundamental. Prime. But yeah. he wouldn't for a moment have agreed with what those right-wingers wanted to do with the sovereignty once they no, reclaimed uh, it. Uh, no, nor me, but there, there you go. No, I think he's, he's brilliant on that. And another thing I think he gets very, very, um, his analysis is absolutely spot on, uh, is his um, view that the nation's interests, the, the country's interests, aren't, don't always align with what big business wants. Very, Absolutely. very good on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think we've had a lot of, we've probably had 30 years of this idea that, you know, what business wants, it gets, mm -hmm. and that the uh, interests are aligned. No, they're not always. And you need a state to, to intervene on the nation's Absolutely. behalf to, mm -hmm. to sort of save it from the worst aspects yeah. of business. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's a fair...? Yeah, absolutely. So, as you said, for the last 30, 40 years, we've had this economic liberal view that all that matters is uh, maximisation of profit, the short-term business interests of, of corporations. Um, and that the larger corporations, in particular the global corporations, don't uh, act within the national interest, mm. really. No, that's right. No, I think he's got that right. He also, finally, um, the, the review of the Spectator, I drew one more thing out, which is that he gave a, a, a sort of pre-warning on ID mm. politics. Because for him, uh, you know, his type of socialism was, was a sort of unified sense of, 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 of us. You know, so you're trying to bring people together. And he, he, he said this many, you know, many years ago in the, in the 80s, that you'll not achieve that coalition and basically convene the unity to, 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 to get uh, Labour to win if you hammer these uh, minority grievances. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I found, I found Shaw throughout prescient uh, and uh, his rightometer is very high, correctometer, I should say, mm -hmm. uh, very, very high. And it's yet another thing that he's got right. Do you think that's, that's fair on ID politics? Yes, and, and Peter was very critical of the 83 manifesto for that reason. So as you said, he stood again. That's when it started. Um, in yeah. 83. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in um, Labour's Choices, the Fabian Society pamphlet that was put out with a statement from each of the four mm -hmm. contenders for leadership, Peter was really the most far-reaching mm -hmm. on that, maybe because by that stage he realised that he hadn't really got much hope of winning, so he didn't mind shocking people mm. and saying uncomfortable things. Mm. Um, but he, it, it was a very far-reaching agenda which he had mm. uh, in 83. Just to finish on Peter Shaw, I mean, I was, you know, I'm an admirer, and I, I think there are four published books, and I had all those books, um, uh, but, I, but I, I looked for a biography and there wasn't one. And I just think it's wonderful that you and, and Jasper and Harry have got this together and finally you know, published a biography to, to, to a man who I think is not just important in Labour Party history, but, but British political history as well, and, and much underrated. So finally, the final question is, how do you think Peter Shaw will be remembered? Well, to go back to the point you were making there, I mean, I, I, that's why we chose the subtitle that we did for that book, which is Labour's Forgotten Patriot, because he was very much a forgotten figure. Mm -hmm. But also there's a double meaning in that, which is that Labour, the Labour Party had forgotten how to be patriotic. Uh, and we saw that over the you know, post-2016 mm. uh, with the demands for a second referendum and so on. Uh, the Labour Party moved further and further away and ultimately paid the price. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't surprising that they paid the price that they did in December 2019 because they were essentially saying to the British people, we don't like you, we don't like your views, <laughs> but please vote for us anyway. And of course, yes. the people weren't willing to do that. No, it's a major uh, in, in, in huge numbers. Mm. Um, and again, as the Labour Party seeks to recover from that, Mm. Uh, then it needs to reconnect, I think, with that forgotten patriotic tradition, mm. which used to be very rich in the Labour Party. So mm. at the mm. um, Gateskill uh, Gate and yeah. Bevin and, and Peter Shaw and others as well. Yeah. 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 
uh, and across the party. So mm. uh, Ben was a, was a very patriotic very, in his, very. his own way, and, and Michael Foot too. Yeah, yeah. Um, Healy. But the, the party's forgotten that patriotic yeah. tradition. And I think that's the significance of Peter Shaw today, that it, mm. it, it, it needs to reconnect with that tradition. I think that, you're absolutely right about that. I think that's true. I'm not, I don't, um, I'm not at all optimistic in the Labour Party making that adaptation. Uh, I, I think for various reasons it probably can't now. Uh, but I think, I think Shaw will be remembered mainly now, certainly among younger people, for the 75 speech of the Oxford Union, which I think I, think I said to you uh, that it was probably one of the best political speeches ever, and you said that it was one of the best speeches ever. So, and I think that's, I think we have that speech and we're very lucky to have it. Again, so prescient, do you agree? Yeah, absolutely, and that's revived Peter Shaw's reputation much more mm. than the, the, the book, because it, it's very widely shared on, on, the, on the internet. Yeah. Uh, and Peter, despite we talked about him being a shy and reserved character, but he was capable of those uh, those great speeches yeah. uh, when he when he was impassioned and the thing that impassioned him most you remember that sitting opposite him was was Ted Heath yes. uh, and he, he, he really did dislike Ted Heath yeah. uh, because he thought that the whole well he thought that the pro-European cause was dishonest mm. but particularly mm. uh, Ted Heath. Mm. No I think he had that right I think history uh, probably proves mm -hmm. it. So let's get on to the second part of the interview which is uh, the new book um, uh, that you've edited uh, with, with Jasper Miles, uh, James Callaghan, uh, an underrated Prime Minister. And, it, and, it's, and it's very interesting because um, Callaghan is associated, isn't he, with, with uh, not, you know, sort of 1970s corporatist failure, isn't yeah, he? And, and, yeah, and people yeah. have written and said that he's actually the person, personification mm -hmm. of that. Uh, so you, you just think of British Leyland, you think of strikes and industrial unrest, uh, you think of high inflation and stagflation. Uh, the winter of discontent, the IMF uh, episode, and so on. So, um, I mean, first question: Do you think it's it's fair to associate uh, Callaghan with that as an individual? Well, he'll always be associated with those times, of course. Mm. And he, he, he had a long career, mm. the only person to hold the top four offices of state in the yes. 20th century, and was always going to build up a lot of enemies. Mm. And so people felt that he'd failed in all of those posts, and they weren't surprised when he failed in inverted commas as prime minister. But I think you have to judge prime ministers not by, um, well, by, by the conditions in which they operate, really, and the level of complexity and the level of the challenges that they face. And Callaghan, probably the worst inheritance of any post-war prime minister. I agree. I mean, I was, I was in the sort of plan of the interview, I was going to talk about that right at the end, because I was going to try and, and we may as well do it now. But I think, yes, what he, what he had to deal with immediately, because remember, it was a, relatively, it was a surprise that Wilson stepped aside. Uh, and then literally within months, you're plunged into a, a, um, a, a financial crisis which involved the IMF. Um, and, and, and right the way through, you know, you had that and then uh, not a lot of progress on the foreign policy stuff with things like Rhodesia, uh, intractable economic problems at home, and then finally the winter of discontent and the delayed. So the whole thing is like a, a series of, of, of major, major challenges. But... Uh, compared to, say, Blair, who was given a golden economic legacy. I mean, I, we can, I'm, as you know, I'm not a fan of Blair's inheritance at all. Uh, I think he, you know, uh, dreadful uh, Prime Minister. Uh, and, uh, but to compare what Callaghan had to deal with, and actually Callaghan held his, his 
uh, party together for those for, uh, during that period. And in terms of political management, would you agree that he was an extremely skillful uh, master? Really, yeah. I'd say. Yeah. Um, so I asked the students, you know, who are strong and weak prime ministers, and mm. they normally say mm. uh, that, that Thatcher and, and, and Blair yeah. were strong prime ministers because right. they won elections, mm. They, mm. they they got their legislation through uh, comfortably because they got a large parliamentary majority and so on. Mm. But that doesn't take account of the, as I said, the context in which they go and they have no majority. Sorts, all sorts of opportunities, mm. Callaghan had to majority, mm. uh, divided party at all levels, very divided cabinet, you know, that cabinet included Tony Benn and Dennis Healy and, and every opinion in between. Uh, so very di a very divided party, uh, a minority government, mm. uh, a, a terrible economic inheritance, as you said, uh, mounting trade union uh, unrest. People forget about the the, you know, the fact that he held it all together. He held it all. I don't think anyone else would have done so. No one else could have done it, really. No, I agree with you. And, about that. and he deserves credit for that. But also, in, uh, after the IMF crisis in 77, 78, the economy improved. Mm. Uh, that's uh, again something which is mm. forgotten. Mm. Uh, he was bringing down inflation, which was his aim. It went up again after Thatcher became prime minister uh, in 79. He avoided the the social distress, social misery of the 80s. Yes. Uh, as well. You know, unemployment did go up, but not by the scale it did under Thatcher. That's true. No, I, in reading the book, obviously one of the nice things about the book is very diverse. So you've mm. got a, a very um, diverse set of contributors mm. that don't all, all agree it, which is actually very helpful. Which is, which is one of the aims that we try to do, as we said in the, viewpoint you know, the introduction diversity. to the book, viewpoint diversity, which yeah. I think is, yeah. is under threat in so many ways. No, it, it is under threat. These days. And it's wonderful to read it. But I, I was, uh, particularly enjoyed uh, Roy Hattersley's comment on on uh, Callahan as the, the, the master of the Pyrrhic yeah. defeat, which I was wonderfully put. So yeah, Pyrrhic defeat, which is having a position he always supported mm -hmm. forced upon him, yeah. <laughs> which is very yeah. good. So um, he's yeah. probably always going to go in the end along with Dennis Healy's position on the IMF. Course. Yes. Uh, yeah. Although I think he was intellectually persuaded by the likes of Tony Croston, who said there was no need for this package of cuts. Mm -hmm. And Dennis Healy conceded in his memoirs that they got it, you know, the treasury figures were wrong. Yes. And if they'd been correct, there wouldn't have been the pressure that there was. And but so. it, do, it does make you wonder, because um, he, I mean, I, I, it's almost, the IMF episode is almost the, the stuff that conspiracy theorists might get a hold of, because that was the pivot where um, corporatist Keynesian approach to, to running the economy pivoted late uh, 76, and you had the famous speech uh, the Labour Party conference, which I think Peter Jay wrote and Callaghan delivered, uh, and saying that you know, such as it was, a policy it didn't work. You know, the previous uh, previous uh, Keynesian approach. Uh, can, I, can I say as a as a description of the post-war economic policy is wrong because that was the first time the economy grew a bit stop start, but it grew generally. Mm. Uh, full employment was maintained until that point. Mm. So when Keynesianism was really tested for the first time, it was abandoned. Yes. Um, so uh, Callum would have known that that was not an accurate description. And when I was, because uh, I did my PhD thesis on the IMF crisis, mm. uh, and Callahan wrote to me and said that, he, you know, that uh, I think there was a, him and Healy would have said the same thing, that they didn't really agree with monetarism, they weren't believing monetarists. Uh, but they felt that the, in order to regain international confidence, that's, those are the things that needed to the, be said. Yeah, the, I mean, I, uh, we, obviously everyone has a different, slightly different reading. Um, of it, but my, my reading is that they, the pr prime problem was inflation, stagflation. So the inflation was, was deemed to be getting out of control. And there was always this trade-off between inflation and growth. And, and that you see that. I've been reading um, uh, the Harold Wilson, uh, Lyndon Johnson correspondence, 
recently, and it's very, very interesting. I'm about halfway through that book. But constantly, and this is when Callaghan was, was, was Chancellor, every time uh, Wilson tried to go for an expansionary economic policy, reflate, in other words, you sucked in imports and you put pressure on the pound uh, because the balance of payments went wrong. So there are all these interlocking problems, and I think you can see, anyway, you can see whether, whether they really need, I mean, the Treasury's figures were wrong, and they, they probably, in my view, didn't need to go to the IMF, but it certainly hurt the Labour Party's reputation, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think the other interesting thing about that period as well is that that was the, the time when protectionist economics was first seriously talked about in Cabinet. Yes. Uh, and because it was then became associated with the alternative economic strategy and the 83 defeat, mm. the Labour Party hasn't dared revisit mm. any of those ideas. Mm. But if we look at the, uh, you know, today, I think there is a case for a limited oh, yeah. protectionism. No, I totally agree with you. And, I, and, I, uh, and we've joked privately, haven't we, that every time I talk about some trade friction, you accuse me of wanting to pull my leg and saying I want a, a sort of Benite siege economy, <laughs> which is not what I'm after. But, the, but, but, it, but there is a role for some trade friction. Yeah. And I've, mm -hmm. I've argued strongly as I can that this idea, this sort of uh, neoliberal idea of of indifference to, 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 to what is made where and by whom, uh, we're at the end of that. And actually, one of the silver linings out of the pandemic is that I think the public is seeing the end of it as well. So actually, I don't want to, personally, I wouldn't have an, an FTA with the United States. You wouldn't have very much of your agriculture left. You certainly it would affect your financial services and other things. And actually, by the way, we've got a, a thumping great trade surplus with the US now. So why would you? So, I, you know, I totally, I mean, I buy into this. I mean, I think Callaghan obviously um, famously slapped 15% tariff on, didn't he, in the 60s without consulting others and it caused, but it was, yes, it was a totally different time. But I, th I read the IMF and the speech to the Labour Party Conference in 76 as being the pivot from that type of economic policy to a much more stringent monetarist obsession with inflation, mm -hmm. which you saw come right through the whole of the 80s. Yeah. So maybe that was the, 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 the switch point. Do you think that's a fair? That was a switch point, but again, to go back to the point I was saying before, I don't think Callaghan believed in monetarism or he No, no. And so there were the 79 So it wasn't a Pyrrhic victory, with, it wasn't with, a Pyrrhic defeat. Uh, yeah. with, with, with Thatcher and Howe. Yeah. I mean, they were... Oh, really no, they, they, they totally... Yeah. No, they were Friedman. No, yeah. They'd, yeah. They'd, they'd drunk the Kool-Aid on that yeah. stuff, yeah. So let's move... So that's the IMF. So, so um, let's move towards the end of... Uh, Callaghan's time as Prime Minister, which is characterised by a uh, Liblab pact, because he didn't have a majority, this constant management of, of votes yeah. in the Commons. Yeah. And then um, a choice, does he go late or autumn 78 mm -hmm. to the public, to the country, or uh, does he go later on? He, he went later on, and a lot of people say, well, that was a mistake, and it's a counterfactual, so you'll never know, and you can't possibly know. But... Um, Here's my view. I don't think he thinks. I don't think he thought he could win. I think he, th he thought. He, I think the polling Bob Worcester was doing said maybe he'd get something like a ten seat majority, something or something not decisive, and he thought, well, I may as well ride it out. And obviously, he lost to Thatcher on forty seats and some, you know, something like that in the end. So obviously, the fact that he lost, people think that's a mistake. What's your take on that whole question of? Yes, I agree. I think Callaghan looked at the, the the private opinion polling, which had been given, and it suggested that he. Wouldn't win or, or win but with so a very narrowly. small majority, yeah, yeah. and I think by that stage he was he was fed up of trying to cobble together deals. Mm. Uh, it was all rather unseemly mm. uh, parliamentary practices in order mm. to get things through, and mm. uh, offering bribes for to 
to other parties, you know, small parties to vote for you and all this sort of thing. Mm. And I think by that stage, he just had enough and he thought it was rather a dishonourable kind of politics, really. I think where there may have been a mistake with the Labour Party is that they thought that maybe that Thatcher was going to run into trouble pretty straight away, maybe mm. removed, and, and, and they could come back. Oh, well. It wouldn't take 18 years to come yes. back. And, of course, Thatcher did run into trouble, and she, yes. she could have been removed in, yeah. in 81, uh, but the Tory wets refused to move against her. Yeah, I mean, that's another counterfactual, isn't it? And then, you know, whole, and then the Labour Party split famously, and we had the creation of the SDP. But, yeah, you'll never know. I mean, I think it's... it's um, and, and, and very interesting to read in the book uh, Jonathan Aiken's view that yes. that he thought that Callaghan was just riding it out to the end yes. uh, as a term and just accepted the fact that his 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 life would be prime minister from seventy six to seventy nine, and that was it, and probably expected to 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 lose. And then you yeah, you I heard Donoghue says in his memoirs that uh, or in his diary that um, Callaghan when he was was electioneering in seventy nine said every few years there's a sea change every thirty mm. years or yes. so. Uh, and this is one sort of sea change, there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. Which I think was interpreted by maybe one or two of the contributors in the book as him trying to justify his failure to call an election in the autumn of 78. Mm. But I think uh, there, there was some truth in that. There was a demand for change, particularly, of course, after the... Well, the, I was, uh, I was young. I was, I'm a little bit older than you, as you know, Kevin. And, and it was the first general election. I have distant memories of 74, or have you? But, I, but I, I, it's the first general election that I was old enough to really... Um, to, to be properly aware of, I think. And no, certainly that was, that was my feeling as a, as a young teenager. I thought, you know, yes, something... And also the first woman prime minister as well. I think there was um, a feeling from maybe in Callan's mind that the trade unions would not go as far as they did in terms mm. of the unburied bodies, the rubbish piling up on the streets, uh, which he thought was uh, disgraceful. Disgraceful. Yeah, yeah. And, actually, and actually reading, uh, if you do a sketch of Callaghan as, a, as an individual, of course, you know, non-conformist Victorian, he's been described as, uh, you know, strong support from, for the armed forces, very traditional views, and against a sort of Jenkins-type uh, permissive society. So um, absolutely solid uh, figure in the sort of small-C conservative Labour tradition, wasn't it? Very, very small C conservative, yeah, and there's lots of anecdotes in the book about his views about homosexuality, mm. for instance. Mm. He didn't think there were any homosexuals in the parliamentary Labour Party. Yes, curious. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. And not, not to mention things in front of his wife because she would, she would be unhappy with them and this sort of thing. Yeah, very traditionalist yeah, yeah. view on life. Um, and also, another thing I should say, because um, um, it's an important fact, that uh, Jim, Jim Callaghan came up sort of through the ranks that were, didn't go to university. Yeah. And I think we'd probably be the last uh, Prime Minister not to go to yeah. university, but an extremely able uh, man. And, and, and the, the politician that I think, I mean, it'd be interesting to get your view on this, the, the, the politician in the United States that I would compare him to is Lyndon Johnson, mm -hmm. who also had, you know, the two things that are really interesting about Callaghan and Johnson are the, their party management and their consummate political skill in managing people. Yeah. Massively good at that, but both well, the presidency and, and, and Callaghan's prime ministership were uh, ruined largely by forces beyond their control. Do you think it's a good com comparison, those two? Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. And, and as you say, he, he was uh, because of his, his the poverty, childhood poverty that he had, he wasn't able to go to, to university and instead rose up through the trade union ranks. Mm. Um, and again, I think that's, uh, it goes back to the Peter Shaw mm. thing as well. Although Peter Shaw worked as a, as a special advisor, as we would now call it. Um, they both had uh, rich lives outside of politics. Yes. 
they yes. both have backgrounds, they have, both have cultural reference points. Yeah. Uh, and again, that, that's something which is lacking, I think, in contemporary politicians. Well, yeah, the sort of graduate takeover mm. of politics yeah. and the think yeah. tank yeah. Uh, conveyor belt. Um, I, I totally agree. I mean, you know, Callaghan had a war record, you mm. know, in that he, he, he you know, he was in the Royal Navy the and Navy. he had that hinterland. Yeah. And sure, in the in the RAF. Yes, and yeah. that and that generation, Healy, they, they had a, they were actually a completely different set of uh, of personalities to, to modern day, certainly mm. to the modern day Labour Party. And that I, I, as I say, I hold both of these uh, men in very high esteem. Mm -hmm. um, and so, can I finally just thank you for for getting these books together? They're a wonderful read, uh, and I would urge anyone to to go out and and, and uh, avail themselves of a copy. Okay, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you, Kevin. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this episode of SDP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors, and public intellectuals. If you'd like to be updated when new episodes of SDP Talks go live, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you're interested in learning more about the Social Democratic Party, do make sure to head over to our website at sdp.org.uk. Thanks for listening.